thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Real Food Real. Today on the show we are joined by Dr. Narala Jacoby, one of Australia's leading experts in the treatment of SIBO, a common cause of irritable bowel syndrome. Narala is the medical director for SIBO Test, an online testing and educational service for practitioners. She is passionate about educating practitioners and lectures nationally and internationally about the assessment and treatment of SIBO. In today's episode, we will discuss SIBO, the biphasic diet, food intolerances, and histamine. Let's get straight into it and welcome Narala to the show. Thanks, Steph. Really happy to be here. Really excited to chat with you. I um, have been following your work for some time, but just to set the scene for our audience here, could you give us a little bit of background information to start, please? Sure. Um, so I'm a naturopathic doctor, which means that in America, we're trained like GPs and naturopaths together. And we are, we practice like primary care physicians, um, treating primarily with natural methods. And I arrived in Australia about 13 years ago, I think now, and started uh, my practice in Brisbane. And about seven years ago, six or seven years ago, I learned about SIBO, which is stands for basically small intestine bacterial overgrowth, a common condition that leads to symptoms of IBS. And because as a naturopath, I had never heard of SIBO, I was really perplexed. I was like, how come this is so common and I've never heard of it? And so I endeavored to learn everything I could about it and then proceeded to do a lot of practitioner education around this topic. And now I have migrated my clinic to the Northern Rivers area and um, still I'm the medical director for SIBOTEST. So that's how that all came about. Yeah, it's certainly a, a hot topic at the moment as well. So let's dive into to more about SIBO. And, you know, you obviously mentioned what it, what it stands for, what the acronym stands for. But what is it, um, how does it manifest and, and how does it develop? It's a really good question because um, for, for the longest time, the causes of IBS have really eluded us. We didn't know why people had ongoing digestive issues. And SIBO is thought to be about 60% of irritable bowel syndrome, which is a really big number. And one of the main causes of, of SIBO is a past history of having had gastro. So a case of food poisoning uh, that then caused your body to release certain antibodies against a very specific function in the upper digestive area called the migrating motor complex. And this is a, sort of like a, this nervous uh, it's a part of your nervous system that propagates this cleansing wave, we call it, um, that basically is supposed to sweep out everything that that's, that's remains in the small intestine uh, after about 90 minutes on an empty stomach. So every 90 minutes when you're when your stomach is empty, you're supposed to sweep that out. So if you've had food poisoning and your body developed antibodies to 
the bugs that cause the food poisoning, it basically paralyzes this housekeeper wave. And then normal bacteria that are in your gut can proliferate um, and increase in numbers, but they're in the wrong location. And that's a problem because there they ferment foods that cause the really common bloating after meals um, and the myriad of IBS symptoms that we, that we often see with SIBO patients. Yeah, but that, also SIBO, I should add to this, mm. it's not always food poisoning. Mm. It can have other causes. Um, I often see patients that have had uh, real extreme stress for, uh, for a period of time that can develop IBS-like symptoms. And also um, things like uh, having had abdominal surgery that then leads to scar tissue called adhesions that can interfere with the normal structure of the small intestine. So there are different causes, but the main cause is really having had this uh, case of gastroenteritis or food poisoning that then paralyzes the normal motility in the upper gut, which can still cause things like diarrhea. So that motility uh, paralyzation is not necessarily leading to constipation, but really leading to a number of symptoms related to SIBO. Yeah, and the symptoms are obviously quite individual and quite broad, but as you say, they are the the typical digestive symptoms that were, you know, once lumped under that big IBS umbrella of which there was no mm-hmm. treatment. <laughs> right. um, so obviously right. it's great news that we now know that SIBO was to blame per se for the vast majority of those cases. So what's been your experience with um, the treatment of SIBO? I know that you obviously have um, – quite a natural approach that we'll go into in greater detail shortly. But before we do, um, what is the more conventional treatment and is it antibiotic driven? Yeah, so conventional treatment includes uh, very, very specific antibiotics. It's not just any antibiotic, but the one that we usually recommend is a product uh, called Zyfaxin or Rifaximin. And that's a it has now been uh, FDA approved in America for specifically treating SIBO. And it is one of those antibiotics that if you do have SIBO, I often recommend it to my patients because it doesn't cause the, um, the typical um, problems with uh, die-off of normal bacteria that, that we sometimes see with regular antibiotics. So, you know, like when you take antibiotics, you can get yeast or overgrowth. You can have all these problems with your microbiome. Uh, that we don't really see that with that particular antibiotic. That's more uh, very specific for a gas called hydrogen that's produced by the bacteria uh, in SIBO. Then we have another antibiotic that's called neomycin, which is more the antibiotic of choice when you, uh, the patient also has methane gas present. So that's getting more specific into what types of gases are produced. But yes, so conventional treatment does include um, some antibiotics, uh, and then also a class of medication called prokinetics, which are substances that aim to uh, reset this migrating motor complex that I mentioned before. Yeah, okay, interesting. Um, I'll just actually jump backwards because I want to hear all about um, your protocols. But how do we diagnose SIBO? And then let's talk about the differences between the hydrogen and the methane types. Mm-hmm. Sure. So SIBO is actually really, really easily diagnosed and it's done with a breath test. And so the aim is uh, that we capture the products of fermentation by the bacteria. Um, and it's a timed event so that by 
uh, it's usually a th- uh, we do a three hour breath test. But with, if you produce gas within the first 90 minutes of uh, collecting your breath uh, to a certain amount, then we can deem this to be the small intestine. So in other words, a patient orders a breath test kit. Um, they undergo a prep diet the day before, and then in the morning they commence this test where they uh, consume a, a test sugar, and then every 20 minutes they capture this their breath with very specialized um, vacuum tubes and uh, breath sample collection device, and they send it back to SIBO test or to a, whatever lab, and the lab analyzes it for two gases. Uh, hydrogen gas that's uh, produced by a number of different bacteria and methane gas, which is usually only produced by one organism. And methane is more associated with constipation. So knowing how much gas and which type of gases really helps to guide our treatment as well. So that's the benefit of actually doing a breath test. And uh, there are a number of different tests where you can usually recommend a lactulose, um, some people, some practitioners prefer a lactulose-glucose combination that increases the um, accuracy of the test. So there are a number of different variances, but just doing a lactulose test is, is sufficient for many people. Right. And that obviously makes it a bit more cost-effective and manageable yeah. from a time point of view as well. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. My- I mean, but, but there is a benefit of ordering uh, different substrates because it's mm-hmm. almost like not every bacteria will ferment every substrate or sugar. Mm. So some practitioners reason that if they do, if they use lactulose and glucose and let's say fructose, you, they're casting their net out further. Yeah. And I've seen it before where lactulose was negative and glucose was positive. But I, for most patients that I see, I just recommend the lactulose. It's, it's occasionally though, the case that I do recommend more than that. But, okay. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, interesting, and they're obviously available at cbotest.com if, if you mm-hmm. you want to mm-hmm. learn more about the testing. But great that it's it's so basic and readily available. Home kits as well, which makes it really practical from a logistical point of view and, and certainly for, for time because I know that, you know, Gastrolab, um, you, ha- you obviously go in and you have to be there for three hours and, you know, mm-hmm. if you are doing two tests, that's two different days and two different prep diets and it can mm-hmm. start to be, you know, a bit of a process but obviously really important to get that diagnosis nonetheless. Yeah, I do recommend that people do start out with testing so mm. that they know what they're actually treating, you know? Yeah, so, I agree. So always test, don't guess is kind of the thing. <laughs> yeah. You're speaking my language. That's excellent. <laughs> Good. All right. So um, let's talk about the the treatment then. Um, I'm, I'm obviously oh, I'm aware of your biphasic diet, but I'm not sure that um, – all of my audience is so I'd love you to start there and explain more about what that is but how you how you got there from a nutrition point of view with your treatment of SIBO Mm -hmm. sure love to um so it all started uh when I first heard about SIBO was uh, in 2011 from Dr. Alison Seebecker who is really sort of the undisputed queen of SIBO Mm. I'd say we can give her that crown She's incredible. She's a naturopathic doctor that's really brought SIBO to the limelight and has 
um, uh, really also made us aware of Dr. Pimentel's research, who, who wrote a book called The New IBS, um, I think it's called The, the IBS Solution, or it, anyways, it's a book about SIBO that's called uh, The IBS Solution, I'm pretty sure. So he started that, I think it was like 15 years ago, and so she took that material and really presented it to the naturopathic and the functional medicine community. And so when I heard about it, it was more or less just a FODMAP diet, but I found mm. that a lot of people still reacted. And for those listeners who are unfamiliar with FODMAPs, it stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, and polyols, uh, monosaccharides and polyols. So these are different fibers in foods, even though they're healthy foods, they can be, they can be very accessible and fermentable by bacteria. And so that diet was uh, really pioneered by Monash University, and we really owe a debt of gratitude to Monash University because they they have uh, really, like I said, pioneered this diet for IBS. And a lot of people are getting great be uh, benefits just from following that diet, independent of whether they have SIBO or not, if they have IBS. So, But from there, I found that many people were still reactive to foods. And so uh, Allison, or Dr. Seebecker, she... Uh, took it a bit further where she combined the, the FODMAP diet with the specific carbohydrate diet, which goes way back to the a, um, 80s. Uh, it's a diet or book that was written called the, uh, Breaking the Vicious Cycle by Elaine Gottschall. And um, that diet was more for celiac disease and inflammatory bowel disease. And so also a restrictive diet in certain aspects. And But, but Alison Seebecker combined these two diets and had this very elaborate uh, uh, allowed and not allowed sort of food list. And I always joke that I am actually German. If you can't pinpoint my accent, I'm actually from Germany. So I like structure and I like to know exactly what I'm doing. So what I did is I took the SIBO specific food guide and a little bit more of the FODMAP diet and created a diet that was actually um, to help practitioners guide their treatment. And so I broke it up into two phases. And the aim was that uh, the patient starts out with a very restricted diet whilst the practitioner is waiting for breath test, uh, testing return. During that time frame, they can also uh, add in a lot of digestive support if indicated. They can add in um, basically sort of gut healing pro uh, protocols if indicated before they ever commence antimicrobial treatment. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that was so that by the time the patient came back, second visit, you have the test result, they've already done this very restrictive diet and some very targeted nutrient supplementation, they often feel already much better. And you've already also treated bacteria by just starving them a little bit. So by the time you then commence antimicrobials, you are not going to have such a tremendous amount of die-off. And that also helped uh, patients because they're not walking out with, you know, 30 different bottles of supplements, which everyone hates when they go to a natural, um, like a naturopath or a functional medical doctor. Uh, where it's just way too much all at once. So that helped me sort of structure my thinking. Uh, after the phase one, which is quite restrictive, uh, and once the patient commences antimicrobials, uh, they can move to the second phase, which is a far more forgiving, um, where we see the re, uh, reintroduction of uh, certain grains like rice and uh, 
uh, quinoa, as well as some fruit. So phase one being basically just protein and vegetables for, for all intents and purposes. That's really just what it is. And then phase two sees um, a little bit more food freedom with, with some grains, uh, some homemade dairy, and uh, also some fruit. So as to patient tolerance, though. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really important to talk about those two phases, but also um, I'd love you to talk about how you do have the, in, even in phase one, you've obviously got restricted and then you've got semi-restricted. So there is mm-hmm. a variance that we can tailor to the individual dependent on on their tolerance because, you know, th- this this is an amazing protocol, but it, it's a guide, would you say, that can then be tailored to the individual? Exactly. I'm really mm. glad you brought that up because mm. I often uh, counsel other practitioners or talk to other practitioners. Uh, there are lots of different circumstances in which you would uh, really adjust the diet to the patient's need, like when somebody has already um, a lot of weight loss. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you wouldn't necessarily just do protein and vegetables because yeah. that's going to further their weight loss. So you can allow for much more pumpkin and a lot more starch and a lot more fat and things like that. So it it serves really as a guideline for the pay, for the practitioner to add or subtract different foods. We're also in the process. Um, I'm right now um, working with Heidi Turner, who's a nutritionist and. Um, in America on a um, histamine biphasic diet, and that should be out in a few weeks. So, um, so that we that we also address different food intolerances that may not be the case for somebody who's just run of the mill SIBO, but the more advanced cases. So we are looking at different variances also of the biphasic diet. But for those people that just need basic SIBO treatment, it's an excellent protocol to follow. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, I think you probably agree that, that the first phase, yes, it's quite restrictive, but you can move through it quite quickly in the space of, you know, four weeks or six weeks. And some people, they would rather do it, you know, quite restrictive per se, but for a short amount of time so they can then start mm-hmm. to evolve the diet. Right. And so what um, what's important to note about phase one is you can make it as long or as short as you want. Mm-hmm. Because as soon as you start antimicrobials, you can be on phase two, right? Mm. So it's not that you have to absolutely complete the four to six weeks in phase one. That's more of, of a guideline, especially if the patient is doing exceptionally well on phase one. Mm. Um, but as you've pointed out, you, we have re, uh, restrict. We start out with restricted. With So within phase one, we have two phases, which is restricted and semi-restricted. And we start out with restricted, but I always tell my patients, you know, as soon as you feel 60%, 70% better, you can move to, to the semi-restricted, mm. which is, again, a lot more, um, adds actually already some fruit back in already. Uh, and that may just, that may take two days, that may take two weeks. We don't know. We have to see um, how the patient responds to the restricted diet. But yes, it is. It's quite um, not as rigid as as some people think it is. Uh, think it to be, but there is a lot of room for movement there. Yeah, and I think you know, like most people, when they first see it, I think you probably agree as well. Will um, can feel quite overwhelmed because you know they're having to look at you know specific portions of vegetables and um, you know like. I think initially it looks like it's going to be very restrictive and quite difficult, but it is just about, 
you know, getting your head around it and making those changes and seeing how you feel so that you can work within that within that protocol but, you know, getting it to suit your, your condition and your lifestyle as much as possible. Yeah, exactly. And there are lots of different, uh, well, maybe not lots, but there are cookbooks available. There are different um, resources that mm. you can use that make your life a little easier because it is it is difficult if you are a very busy person and you have to meal plan and there are certain certain things that you have to do to commit to your health, you know. So it's not an easy thing to as as easy as just FODMAP and you take the app the FODMAP app to the to to Woolies or something, you know, <laughs> where you just say, All right, well yeah, it is a little bit more involved, but I tell you it's definitely worth it if you uh suffer from SIBO because symptoms uh, can be can resolve fairly quickly with that. Yeah, excellent. So obviously phase one, um, and then we move into phase two where we start to add um, some grains and even some lentils or um, Mm -hmm. legumes if that suits the individual. And this is where you look at adding in some of the antimicrobials. So can you take us through what the priorities are there from a natural treatment point of view? So the um, if you look at phase one, which is focused more on really initiating digestive support, and that could be anything from, uh, you know, herbal bitters is my favorite. Um, and I have different formulas that I use depending on what the patient's need are. But bitters are a really good digestive tonic. And oftentimes I just start with that and I um, may use some digestive um, or gut healers, uh, classically things like zinc or glutamine or a number of different nutrients that may be indicated Uh, and then once you start antimicrobials that really differs depending on what type of gas you are producing Mm -hmm. so if you're a hydrogen producer uh, there are different compounds that your practitioner may use I don't know if you how you want me to go through this if a lot of uh, people don't want me to mention names and I won't mention names of products if you don't want me to but they are very (laughs) okay all right Uh, it's that kind of podcast okay great Um, all right so we I mean the danger is always like if I mention names that people self-medicate, right? Mm-hmm. And that you really do need to be under the guidance of a, a qualified practitioner that knows what they're doing. Because one of the one of the reasons why I get so many referrals is because the treatment plan was done wrong. You know, number one, uh, where it wasn't done uh, long enough. They didn't retest. They, d- they used the wrong herbs. They used the wrong dose. Um, all different types of uh, failure to actually complete the protocol effectively. So for that reason, just in a nutshell, the hydrogen gases are usually very susceptible or the the bacteria that produce hydrogen um, are very susceptible to berberine-containing plants. So these are plants like golden seal or philodendron or uh, barberry or Oregon grape, any naturopath will know a number of uh, berberine-containing herbs that are very effective in reducing hydrogen. Um, there are others, uh, such as uh, uh, oil of oregano or neem, which is more of an American product because in, in Australia we don't have any neem products available here. But um, other others would include... Um, uh, you know, I mean, there's different formulas that I use that are made by different companies that tend to be quite effective. Essential oils of thyme and, as I mentioned, oregano and clove can be very good. Mm-hmm. And then for methane, uh, I usually recommend a very specific garlic extract that is uh, that has a 
um, proprietary blend of what's called Ali Shure. Mm. And Ali Shure is a stabilized active ingredient of garlic because when you age garlic, it loses its antimicrobial activity. So not all garlic capsules or garlic products will work for, for methane. But for methane, we also are starting to see the emergence of certain probiotics that can be helpful and certain prebiotics uh, because methane is now thought to be, uh, can if, if methane is high and stays high throughout a test, so in other, in other words, if we don't see a very distinct rise in the first 90 minutes, but it's just high throughout, that's now thought to be a different condition altogether, more of an IBS with constipation dominance that's caused by methane. Uh, so it's a little bit of, a little bit tricky to uh, figure that out, but um, we can help you with that with SIBO tests. But so the point being is that if you have a methane dominant case that's not SIBO, you can you have a lot more leeway with the diet and you can use a lot more prebiotics as well. Okay, because with prebiotics we always have to be careful not to feed the SIBO bacteria. So you can see it gets a little complicated and why you need a really SIBO-savvy practitioner. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point to clarify. It's not about, you know, self-medicating and it's testing initially to make sure that's what you're dealing with and then working with someone who can guide your treatment, absolutely. Um, I think the most important takeaway is that there's obviously subsections of SIBO and it's important that your, you know, your treatment is tailored to those test results. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, excellent. Um, but good that it can be done naturally. And um, back to what we were speaking about earlier with regards to the antibiotics, um, do you feel like there are a, a certain type of SIBO or a certain type of person that needs to do the combination of antibiotics and herbs? And conversely, um, what sorts of subsections of SIBO can you see being treated without antibiotics successfully? So I've, uh, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question mm. because, uh, but I want to sort of emphasize that generally speaking, if we're talking about broad spectrum antibiotics, I'm certainly the first one to say this is not a good idea for, um, for any kind of gut uh, uh, sort of condition that has uh, dysbiosis or microbiome dysbiosis as it's at its core, right? Because it'll make that situation worse, mm. meaning that you'll kill off a lot of good bacteria along with that. So I'm the first one to say that. Uh, however, when it comes to SIBO, these antibiotics tend to be so specific that they really don't do any damage unless the practitioner really doesn't know or the GP doesn't know uh, what they should be prescribing and starts to prescribe broad-spectrum antibiotics, which is not a good idea. Um, I think rifaximin is an excellent antibiotic. And if I um, had the medical license that I have in America here, I would probably recommend it more than I do. So I, I do think it's an excellent choice. However, um, and, and let's also say that just because uh, we, want, we want to use herbs doesn't mean that the herbs will work better as the antibiotics. But I've seen it both ways. You know, just yesterday I had a case where the herbs didn't do anything and she responded really well to the rifaximin and neomycin combination. Conversely, I see, I've also seen the exact opposite, where people failed antibiotics and they do really extremely well on herbs. So overall, I'm a huge proponent of herbal medicine and the, the use of herbal medicine, 
um, in general, but I'm always an advocate for the patient. You know, if they're, if they're not responding to treatment, it's not good if I'm going to persist on herbs, if they do better with antibiotics. And that's really, you, you can't, there's not a specific subset of people that will respond better than others. So you never know. You just, if you're, if you're somebody who works a lot with herbs, then you would start there. And then that's the purpose of the retest so that you know whether or not you've really eliminated SIBO and you um, are done where you can then move to your prokinetic management um, uh, treatment, right? So it's, it's a little bit tricky if you're not somebody who tests a lot um, or, or knows how to uh, guide a person through this treatment, but we have a lot of education for practitioners um, on our website. So, you know, that's what I'm really passionate about is, is getting as many practitioners SIBO savvy as possible because it is not just a condition where we see bacteria. It's a condition that needs um, sort of a, a much more comprehensive approach that includes the enteric nervous system and then your microbiome and all of that. So it's a bit more complicated than just treating bacteria. Just to kind of finish up on the herbs, one of the great benefits of herbal treatments is that it is also inclusive of treating yeast overgrowth, right, which the antibiotics would not be doing. And one big problem or um, a condition that's often seen together with SIBO is a condition called CFO, which is small intestine fungal overgrowth. Very, very common. And the symptoms are exactly the same. So you can't really differentiate between the two. And there is no test for CFO. So very often I prefer herbs because I might actually be able to treat candida or yeast overgrowth. Might not be candida, could be a different yeast. But it could be um, very effective because we're getting more than just SIBO bacteria. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Now, recently you presented at um, or for the SIBO Online Summit and you were talking about food intolerances and SIBO. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so this came out of, the, out of my sort of uh, depth of despair, not depth of despair, I'm totally dramatic, that's not true, <laughs> but more like, you know, you see these patients that are suffering for 20 years and they're getting worse and worse and they're painting themselves into a corner with eating only three foods mm -hmm. or four foods and the more they restrict their diet um, in a very valiant attempt to heal themselves, they become more reactive. So they say, you know what, Narala? I used to be able to eat, let's say, Brussels sprout, but now I can't eat that anymore. Or I used to eat uh, X, Y, and Z, and now I react to that. And that, um, so I was really saying, what's going on here? Why are people becoming more reactive? And uh, why do they seem to have more food intolerances? Well, as it relates to SIBO, that's not too far-fetched because SIBO causes actually quite a bit of damage in the small intestine. So... When we think about, uh, you know, the small intestine, you have to sort of imagine a rolled up shaggy carpet, right? The rolled up shaggy carpet is the, uh, the little shags on the carpet are the finger-like protrusions called the villi, which is like really like fingers that stick out into the gut uh, uh, space. And they're there to increase your surface area so that you absorb your nutrients. On the top of these fingers you have little tiny hairs that are called the microvilli. And in the, like at the border of the microvilli, 
what it, what they actually secrete are brush border enzymes. So these are very specific enzymes that help you with the breakdown of disaccharides, which are tiny, tiny starch molecules, so that you can absorb them. And you also absorb uh, your uh, you break down your peptides into amino acids so that you absorb them. So very, very important interface. And SIBO can damage that. So you can have this pro- this problem with maldigestion and malabsorption due to the loss of this br- of these brush border enzymes. One very particular enzyme that also sits there is called diamine oxidase, which is an enzyme that breaks down foodborne histamine. So certain foods that um, are naturally high in histamine, such as fermented foods, bone broths, spinach, tinned foods, etc., and so when that's destroyed by SIBO bacteria or the gases, you can become more reactive to those histamine uh, that are naturally found in those foods. And I do see that a lot. Um, and so I started to investigate histamine. Salicylates is another uh, area of food intolerances that I often see that's a little bit different from histamine intolerance. And then also oxalates. So these are all naturally occurring substances and foods that normally we shouldn't be reacting to. But when you have such a uh, gut dysfunction, uh, you can develop those food intolerances. Yeah, fascinating. And it's a really, really good point to raise because, you know, a lot of practitioners, myself included, meet those people that start pulling more and more foods out, um, which Mm -hmm. obviously perpetuates the problem. So it's good that you've been able to explore that deeper as an explanation as to to what's going on and then offer some, some treatment. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's been interesting. It's, and, and there are different reasons why all of that occurs. You know, besides the histamine, there's also if you restrict your foods to uh, five foods, you will breed very specific bacteria in your, just normally in your, in your large intestine that, uh, you know, by the time you've, you've reached that and you start to introduce food, you'll react to everything that you introduce. Mm-hmm. That's normal. And people don't really understand that and that they have to kind of go through this period of reactivity before they can really increase their resiliency again they're, they're, so that they don't react to certain foods. So it's a process and you have to go very slowly uh, and and really one of the big key elements there is to get rid of SIBO first. Yeah, absolutely. And histamine is obviously quite complex because there are a lot of the the healthy foods on that list and we're telling people to do their food prep and have leftovers and then it perpetuates mm-hmm. the problem. So, yeah, it's, it's obviously complex and it's, a, you know, good to be aware of these foods that they could be a trigger and to explore that a little bit more if you are reacting to, to those foods. Mm. Yes, yeah. And histamine, you know, like when you do some research into histamine intolerance and like a lot of people that have unexplained digestive symptoms actually have histamine intolerance. Mm. Um, it's really fascinating once I started to look into it that it's, it's not that uncommon. So, yeah, it's a good one to look into. Yeah, absolutely. Very fascinating. And I wanted to um, talk to you about what else you have going on at the moment, obviously. Um, you are well well known for SIBO and I know that you've got high demand in treating um, that particular condition. But you know, what else are you working on and have you got some new projects that you'd like to share with us as well? Well, I'm really excited to announce, this is actually the first podcast I've announced this on now, but that um, we are opening a, um, 
a center for functional digestive disorders up here in Northern Rivers. It's called the Biome Clinic. And it's going to have a, it's a sort of a team approach where I believe that it's not just naturopathic medicine or herbs or um, whatever modality thing, but it's really sort of a multi approach to um, treating really chronic digestive disorders. And that's been my experience. There's also the emotional aspects and, um, you know, different stress management techniques that I just, in my one hour of visit, I just don't get to, mm. to really counsel people on these, on these issues. So I have sort of assembled a really excellent team of practitioners to, uh, have people be very taken care of in all these different aspects. And that's going to be opening in, um, hopefully October, fingers crossed they're building. If you hear any building noise, that's what's happening in the background is that that clinic is being built as we speak. So, um, uh, but until then I'm still available, uh, through my other, uh, my normal clinic, which is, uh, Jacoby natural healthcare where I can see patients and all that. But, that I'm just. This has been so exciting to uh, to plan and to really see this amazing team come together. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, absolutely, very exciting, and looking forward to to following the launch and and learning more. Um, and I know also we touched on earlier that you're really passionate about teaching practitioners, and that's something that you want to be able to um, do a lot more of. Um, Tell us just a little bit more about where any of our practitioners listening can learn more, um, including your podcast. Mm-hmm. So, yes. So I've been actually involved in practitioner education for a long time on different topics, but really specifically for SIBO for the past six years. And um, if you go to SIBO test and sign up as a practitioner, there's a plethora of uh, free information, but also the education portal, which allows you to um, start with SIBO Fundamentals, which is a course that's by Dr. Seebecker and Dr. Jason Horlack that talks about pre and probiotics and gets you really good, well started on uh, learning everything about SIBO. And then uh, another course is Masterclass, where we go into these different topics of food intolerances, methylation, and lots of genomics, lots of different areas to also uh, consider. So there's a lot of education on that website, but I really started the SIBO Doctor podcast because I love talking to people like you do probably. And I'm always so fascinated by experts and what they have to offer. So I've learned a lot by just doing the podcasts and um, interviewing amazing people and practitioners like about neurotransmitters and how they relate to gut health and so really fascinating, and that's that can be also found at SIBO Test or the SIBO Doctor podcast. So a lot of options for people to get up to snuff with their SIBO treatments. Yeah, absolutely, and it, it can be a complex issue, but you explain it so well. And you know, myself personally, I've had some amazing success in clinic with my SIBO clients following your protocol. So very grateful for the knowledge that you continue to share. Um, Great. Thanks for the feedback. It's always nice for me to hear that people are getting a lot out of it. I know. And it, yeah, as you would have probably um, experienced firsthand when you get that second test back and there's no longer SIBO, like you just want to do a happy dance for your client. And it's so rewarding. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is really rewarding. And so, you know, like, honestly, I get the cases that are like, they don't respond, you know? So it's my, like, it's, I, I miss those days where I see really easy patient, patients, but. <laughs> 
um, I, I do uh, still really enjoy what I do for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Very rewarding. So thank you so much for sharing um, your story and certainly your knowledge with us today. I'll put all the links to um, your online homes and social media in the show notes. So I'd love for um, you guys listening out there today to um, you know, head to those show notes to learn more about SIBOTest.com and, and obviously, Narala, what you've got coming in the near future. So, yeah, really appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot for having me on the show and um, helping me to get the word out on about SIBO and, and teaching more practitioners so that they know what they're doing. I'm yeah. happy about that. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully we'll um, be able to have you back on the show in the near future and, and hear more about um, your new clinic. Great. Thanks a lot, Steph. Thank you. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.